Well, Psalm 77, we have a title at the top of the psalm. In your Bible, it probably uh, is titled the same as mine. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. This is the name of, of the psalm, the title that's given to it. And this is a psalm of Asaph. He has, his, Asaph's life wasn't particularly uh, tumultuous, but yet here we find his position. We find uh, a bit of insight into his mind. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I read the Bible, I often wonder what the characters are thinking, and Psalms are filled with the information about what they're actually thinking. When you, when you read, uh, you know, about David leading armies into battle, or when you read about, uh, you know, Solomon and the wisdom that he has and how he brings, uh, you know, this wisdom to bear on certain situations, you often wonder, like, how, what is he thinking? Like, how does, it, how does that even happen? But here the Psalms, we find insight into this world, into what it looks like to be uh, someone who has great responsibility, who has great power, who has great influence, and to us maybe seem like they are people who are completely bulletproof. It's like, wow, like David was empowered by God to go and defeat Goliath, like the craziest warrior of his time. He had the ability to go out and in faith select, you know, these smooth stones, which probably were great for aerodynamics, but aren't great for like making a, uh, you know, a huge gash in someone's head. So, you know, it's like, why did he pick smooth ones? Like all these things, you're like, the Lord empowers him and gives him these instructions, and he goes off and does these great feats, and he leads armies, but yet, it's like, what, what is it like? He's, he can't be like that superhero confident all the time. But the Psalms give us great insight into what it means to be someone who knows God, but yet also is a human. <laughs> you have this the struggle and the way that we go through life, we go through seasons of, of tribulation, trial, turmoil. We can all agree the struggle is real. The struggle is real. None of us live in this bulletproof uh, life that the biblical characters often seem to live in this way. And so as we come to Psalm 77, we look at this uh, bit of turmoil in the life of Asaph. Now, this psalm starts off with a bit of a description of his, of his action, but his expected response. In verse 1 we read, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. If you notice there, you, you, can, you can kind of get some insight into his action. This person, the psalmist, is at the point in his life where he's dealing with some situation where he's asking God to help. Now, let me just put, throw this out there for you. Notice he cries aloud to God. Like, it's escalated to that level. He's not going to, like, pray, like, in his head in the corner and be like, Lord, do that thing. He's, like, brought to the point where it's, like, it's time to be dramatic and to pour out his heart to the Lord. He's, he is getting 
uh, emotional. He is invested in his situation in the in the um, in the time of his life that he's going through, in the trial that he's experiencing, in the day of trouble that he is in. He's not quietly going about it like the Lord's going to do something. This gives us permission to be raw and real with the Lord. So if you need to put on your ugly face and cry and have snot running down your face, like, praise the Lord. Do that to the glory of God. Just get it all out and you can be real with God. He's crying aloud to the Lord. He's bringing his fears to the Lord. He's not trying to keep it all neat and buttoned up. And a lot of times when we deal with God, that's how we want to, we want to do it. We want to come to God with our prayer with our situation and be like, okay, Lord, um, because you don't really know how this works and you don't know how the angles, I brought this to you in the multiple choice option. So you can go with option A, here's this package with all of these amenities that I will get. And then here's package B, and this package includes all of these amenities. And maybe there's a little bit of turmoil towards the end of that one, but then at the end I get this big payoff that helps out. You know, we kind of want to approach God with all of our options and then be like, Lord, please pick one of these. But this is not the situation that, uh, or the way that we should approach the Lord. We want to come being real with him. Now, he expects a response. He, he comes with his action. I cry aloud to God and aloud, uh, aloud to God and he will hear me. He knows that God is listening to him. He expects God to hear what he's saying. But we find something interesting as we go through. He, finds, he expects God to respond, but the position of his heart is oriented in the wrong direction. He's coming and going through the motions and doing the right things, but his mind isn't completely right in the way that he's approaching. We look in verse 2, we see... He continues and he describes the situation. He says, in the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. Now, here we find the context for the psalm. We don't know what kind of trouble he's dealing with. We don't have any insight from other portions in Scripture. But he's in some sort of uh, trouble. And as a God-fearing man, his dealing with trouble... The day of trouble drives him to seek the Lord. It drives him to seek the Lord. This is is something that we need to remember. This is something that we need to, to return to when we are in the day of trouble. Because trouble has a tendency to drive us elsewhere. When we deal with adversity, difficulty, trials, tribulations, when we're trying to make big decisions... The first thing that we want to do is we want to go and look at all the options. Oh, let me go figure out what what I can do about this. But the day of trouble should drive us to the Lord. Where is it that you look in times of trouble? Where, Where we go and focus in times of trouble reveals a lot about our hearts. It reveals to us where we're putting our faith, what we're trusting in primarily. It reveals to us the hidden motive of the heart. When you deal with difficulties, trials, tribulations, as you move through life, when you experience these things, where you go for help, the primary place, the first spot you go, 
that reveals a lot about where you're investing your life. Now, the Lord should be that primary place. And then from there, the Lord works oftentimes through supernatural means to provide things way, like, just, I would have never even thought to think about that, to pray about that. And the Lord's just like, here's this thing that is really helpful that you would have never even thought about. um, And I want to bless you with this. Sometimes that happens. But a lot of times the Lord works supernaturally through natural ways. He gives us his divine direction to things that, he, that are provided naturally in the world for us. He is guiding us, leading us in the path that he would have us to go. So we need to remember to seek him first because we don't know how he's going to address our needs, our trial, our day of trouble. We don't know whether it's going to be a supernatural response and we don't know whether it's going to be a supernatural, natural response. We don't know. It's the Lord's direction. Now, the psalmist here, he's dealing with this great time of trouble. The day of trouble. He seeks the Lord. He's doing the right thing. Here's what he says. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. Psalm 143.6 elaborates on what this means. It says, I stretched out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. What the psalmist is saying here is, I'm in prayer stretching out my hands to you saying, Lord, I need your help. His arms are outstretched. He's he's desiring God to help him in his situation. He goes on and he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. Now, a lot of times we can come to this place where our soul refuses to be comforted. We're praying, we're going through, we're doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. He's praying, he's seeking the Lord, he's, he's going through it, and there's still just this worry, this anxiety, this fear. Going through all of the, all of the things that he should be doing. But a lot of times, We work ourselves up and refuse to be comforted over something that is not really a big deal. It's like we want to be refused to be comforted. And so things that are small, things that should not be an issue, because we're not resting in the Lord, we we could find comfort there, but because we're not resting in the Lord, our soul refuses to be comforted. We, We like the attention. And so we... Although we don't like the anxiety and the worry, there's a certain amount of attention that can be brought when we're in these situations. Now the psalmist here, he's dealing with the reality of refusing to be comforted. His soul refuses to be comforted. Many of us don't ever get this far in our day of trouble where our soul is actually refusing to be comforted. It's like we're praying. And sure, you might have to return to prayer and have that the Lord speak peace into your life again. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, you might have to pray again. That's normal. That's regular. This, is, this here is similar to a passage in Genesis chapter 37. This is kind of the same word that's being used, where Jacob... He gets the news that Joseph, his favorite son, the one, you know, with the 
super crazy colored coat, and he was like all sweet looking, and it was given to him by his dad, and his brothers like basically sell him into slavery, and then they put the coat and like blood and tell him like, oh, like your son was killed, and then his father receives this news. This is likened to this grief, this, you know, someone's dying. His soul refuses to be comforted there in Genesis chapter 37. This is what it really means to have this deep uh, discomfort in your soul. Here, this man, Asaph, is dealing with such trouble. Now, here's what he does. He thinks about his past experiences. In verse 3, he says, When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now, that doesn't really seem like it's real helpful because, you know, when we think about God, when we remember him, then that should fix things, right? Uh, when, when we meditate upon him, our spirit should be refreshed and not, and not weary. What's happening here is the psalmist is indeed remembering his past exper- spiritual experiences with the Lord. He's remembering all of the things, the ways that God has helped. He's remembering the times where God has worked in his life. Now, just because he has his eyes on God doesn't mean that things are going to be easy. He's remembering these things, and that's okay. It's okay that it's not easy. He is dealing with himself honestly here. And a lot of times when we deal with troubles and hardships, when we deal with difficulty in life, we don't deal honestly with ourselves. We hide these things. But in the Psalms, we find the psalmists reveal to us the deepest portions of their hearts. It's David who knew the Lord so well, who was handpicked among Israel, who ministered before the Lord, who uh, had this close relationship with the Lord. It's David who speaks in Psalm 42. And he does this all throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 42, Psalm 43, repeatedly he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in in turmoil within me? He's asking these questions like, Self, what is wrong? Why are you so depressed? Why are you so emo? Why are you so cast down? Like, what is going on? He's doing these self-assessments to find out the reality of his disposition, the reality of how his heart is doing. He's dealing honestly with himself. And then in those same passages, when he identifies the problem, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? What is, what is so wrong? Why are you at turmoil within me? Then he gives the prescription, hope in God. Hope in God. He identifies the problem, but then simultaneously says, you need to hope in God. He's speaking forth the gospel to himself. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. 
He's putting in a lot of effort. The psalmist is putting in a lot of effort here to try to remember all the good things that God has done. And he's remembering them and then he's being disappointed that that's not happening now because he's in the day of trouble now and God is not doing for him now what he had done for him in the past. God, you've already done this. Why do you, what's the problem here? When he's meditating, his spirit is getting tired. It faints. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. What does that mean? Sleepless nights. You hold my eyelids open. Open. He's there upon his bed. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. The psalmist is invested in these difficulties. We've all had sleepless nights. We've all had nights of worrying, tossing, turning, waking up again and again, thinking about things. So much so that he finds himself so troubled by his situation that he cannot speak. Now, maybe for some of you guys, like, that's not really that big of a deal. Because it's like, eh, I'm not really a big talker anyways. I don't really share my situation. But most of us, when we get in situations, we want to, like, tell other people about it. When we're dealing with hardship, when we're dealing with difficulties, we want to be like, hey... Uh, let me find some close people so I can go and vent to them, so I can dump on them, so I can let them know all the difficulties and the hardships and the trials. I need to have some people to kind of commiserate with me. He says, I, I'm just so troubled that I, I can't even open my mouth. I'm just sitting there, exhausted, eyes open, mouth closed, He reverts back to that same position in verse 5. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. Right? This seems like a good thing. Thinking back on the old times. He's trying to remember these past experiences. Now, there's something to be said about remembering God's work in our lives through these past experiences. The Bible tells us that we should remember God's works, that we should think about the times where he has helped us and remember his faithfulness in these moments. When our past experiences direct us, to God's present work in our lives, then we find help there. But too often we get nostalgic. And we don't think, oh, God was faithful then. He will continue to be faithful now. We think, God was faithful then. Why isn't he being faithful now? Think about those times where we wish God worked now how he was working in our lives not too long ago. And so we want to remember God's faithfulness. We want to remember his consistency. We want to remember his goodness, his blessing, the way that he has worked in our lives. But we want that to inform our current situation in a healthy manner. He remembers one of his, situ uh, his circumstances, his experiences with the Lord in verse 6. 
He says, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So he's remembering the, the song of the Lord. This is good stuff. These are things that we ought to have. These are all good things. He says, I'm remembering my song. Psalm 42, verse 8, right after David says there, why you cast down on my soul, hope in God. In verse 8, he says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. As God's people, we should have these spiritual songs, these hymns in our hearts that we can sing to the Lord. This is one of my favorite things to do. I'm at night, I'm walking around, chilling in the house, ready to get in bed, putting the kids to bed, go in there with the guitar, we sing a little song. It's awesome. I love having these songs to sing. The Lord puts these old hymns in, in my heart. I, I, um, at the church that I grew up with, uh, at my pastor had like, he was like denominational, old school, like, and he would pull out the, the stool on a Sunday night and like they didn't, would ha- we wouldn't have like a full worship team. But he would just like pull out a little stool and sit there and he would just like sing. <laughs> he would, we would just like, it was like campfire sing-alongs and he would just like sing all the songs we were going to sing. There was like no worship leader and he was just like, all right, like we're going to do, he, he wouldn't tell you, he would just keep singing the whole time. Then he would get up and preach. And then, but it was just, it was just like a no-nonce. All of those songs are like rooted in my mind, these old school uh, hymns, like the obscure ones that you're like, where did that even come from? Uh, those are the songs that the Lord has put in my heart. And those things are a source of encouragement. A lot of the songs that we sing on Sunday, I, I'll take little bits and pieces from them throughout the week. As I'm walking around, just this week, as, uh, I was out with the family on vacation, and I was out walking. The Lord just put this, that, that beginning of, of uh, I don't even know what the song is, but it's, who can cheer the heart but Jesus. You know, like that whole, that whole line of just like thinking on it the whole week. These things sustain us, and for me personally, I needed that sustaining because, as you know, as you guys know, like we're trying to find housing, and I'm out here camping already in kind of this transient housing situation intense. So uh, it was just like the Lord reminding me again. And I was like, yes, holding on to that. We want to remember the song of the Lord. The psalmist says, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. This is the type of thinking that we should do upon our bed meditating in our hearts, thinking upon the Lord. Upon God's faithfulness, Psalm 4.4 tells us, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. I like how he does that. The time where we're likely to sin and likely to get angry and likely to get frustrated is when we're sitting on our beds and we're just there we want to start talking and running our mouth about all the things that we're not really happy about, we're upset about. We want to be, get, just fall into this bit of anger, frustration. He pairs that together. He says, be angry and do not sin. 
ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. He's talking about dealing with these things with the Lord. And so the psalmist, he begins, as he thinks about these things, to ask natural questions. These are the questions that we would tend to ask when we're feeling this way. We find these questions in verse 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? I don't know about you, but I've had that thought. Like, what the heck is the deal? Like, when are we going to get some movement on this situation? Like, can I get an answer to my prayer, Lord? Is this ever going to happen? Verse 8, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? I don't know about you guys, but I've had that one too. Like, the Lord has made these faithful promises to his people, but maybe I'm the last one that it's not going to be kept with. Like, I'm going to be the one that falls through the cracks, and he is not going to meet my needs or provide for me. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's thought those things, like this psalmist. Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Man, that's one I'm sure that resonates as well. Like, Lord, this is not what graciousness looks like to me. The way that you're dealing with me, I don't really like this. This is uncomfortable. I actually am starting to get upset at you because it seems like you've forgotten what compassion looks like. This is a type of, of attitude that I can develop, that we can develop as God's people because he's not working how we want him to work. And so he asks these series of kind of what would seem to be rhetorical questions, like he kind of means them, but then it's kind of like also like you can see in verse 10 there's a turn and he understands like maybe that's not true maybe these things are not true in verse 10 we find this this turn it says then i said i will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the most high so the psalmist here he's no longer content to lean upon god's past works as a means of comfort nor is he going to use god as a means to an end, he's not going to say, Lord, I'm having difficulties, and you're the person that I come to to get my difficulties fixed. My day of trouble, I, I'm done with the day, I'm, I'm over the day of trouble, so the way that it works is I come to you, you fix the day of trouble, and then I go back to my, uh, my way. I do what I'm going to do. He suddenly seems to remember who God is. And he remembers the key. God himself is our prize. This is what he says in verse 10. He appeals to God's character. I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He says, God, I'm going to appeal to your character. You say that you are God over all, sovereign, ruling, and reigning. You are our provider. You are the one who meets our needs. You are the one who gives us identity. And so I'm going to, to hold you to that promise. And I'm going to press into that and say, if I come and find you, if I look to make you my ultimate joy, my ultimate treasure, that these other things will fall in line. He's starting to get this. Look at in verse 11. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. He's thinking about what God has done. 
He's doing what he did before, but he's doing it with this new mentality. He's remembering what God has done of old. Verse 12, I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Look at how he starts that. He says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. You see, when we focus on our work, when we focus on the things that we do, when we focus on our ability, it's disappointing. No wonder we have anxiety. No wonder we have worry. No wonder we have fear. But God's work is complete. It's refreshing. And so when he says, I'm going to focus upon your works, I'm going to think about all the things that you have done, Lord, all your mighty deeds, he's never disappointed. Because God's promises are continually on display. Psalm 9.1, it encourages us, it exhorts us. The psalmist writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And paired with that, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. We see in Psalm 9 there that these things are married together. Thanksgiving is connected to remembering what God has done. His wonderful deeds. And because he's made this turn in heart, because his motive has changed, because he sees that God is the ultimate prize, the ultimate joy that he's after, he continues in verse 13. And he takes us on a tour of God's works. Your way, O God, is holy. Right? He doesn't say my way, the way that I selected, what I wanted to do is holy. He says, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Now, when I first started studying this, I didn't know this was so like rooted in Exodus, but it's, you know, the Lord, that's how the Lord rolls. He's like, boom, like you've been going through Exodus and you just learned about all this stuff. Here's some Exodus nuggets in the middle of Psalm 77. So we find this same phrase, what God is great like our God. The Lord just, just spent the whole time leveling like the Egyptian gods and asking that same question like, there's no one like our God. Verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. So speaking of everyone at large. Verse 15, you with your arm redeemed your people. This exodus. The children of Jacob and Joseph. It's God's complete work. They didn't participate. They actually just complained and dragged their feet the whole way. And it was the Lord who rescues and saves. Verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. When the water saw you, oh God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. I mean, that, that to, the, to the people of Israel, to those ancient cultures, the water was this great, uh, thought of as this great place of judgment, of terror. It is likened, uh, it, is, it is thought of in a way that, the sea claims uh, 
those who deserve judgment. It, it is no wonder that in the story of Jonah that the sailors all were like, yeah, like God is angry with him, like let's throw him into the ocean, like he will be judged there. And then the Lord, you know, creating this uh, amazing redemptive narrative through Jonah getting rescued, it's amazing. We, we find that same level of judgment here being expected through the sea here. The sea is under God's authority. He is sovereign over it. It trembles. They're afraid of the Lord. He rules and reigns. The clouds poured out water, verse 17. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Right? We have this recounting of what just happened at Sinai with like all this crazy fire and lightning and the people approaching the mountain to be given the law. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. The children of Israel were backed into a corner as they came to the Red Sea. There was not a way. They were about to be attacked by the very nation that they had just escaped. The Lord redeemed them, rescued, and saved them. Then he sent them like in this weird roundabout way to basically like make them look like bait. And then they go like on a camping trip and come under attack which I just came back from a camping trip, so I'm waiting for this next cool part to happen. But there, as they see the army of Pharaoh approaching, the Lord's like, boom, parts the Red Sea. It's not just a drop in the water so they can go through, but the land is dry. They go through, and they're saved. The Lord took them through the great waters, but his footprints were unseen. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses in Aaron. You see, it's the Lord who takes his people through these situations. He leads and directs them through to them, these, the children of Israel, these circumstances were definitely the day of trouble. They, this wasn't the low-level stuff. This was definitely the day of trouble that they were going through, being under attack, being trapped, having to uh, face you know, death. But the children of Israel would have never chosen the bitter waters at Marah. The children of Israel never would have chosen to be trapped at the Red Sea. The children of Israel never would have wandered in the wilderness on their own. These things were by God's design. It was God who led them into these very experiences. It was God who provided for them, who met their needs. His footprints were unseen, but yet he was working through his people in the lives of his people. And so the psalmist here, he understands that although he's in the day of trouble, 
Focusing upon the day of trouble is not the solution. Dealing with the circumstances is not working. He starts off doing what he's supposed to do, crying out to the Lord, saying, like, Lord, I'm in the day of trouble. Nothing wrong with that. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to get God to intervene and to, he's trying to get God to do what he wants him to do. But now he begins to focus on who God is. And even in prayer, we need to acknowledge that it's easy to get caught up on asking God for the results that we want instead of being caught up with who God is. You see, God is not our means to an end. We don't come to him to get the results that we want. We come to him to speak with him, to know him, to enjoy him. And in the process, we let him know what's going on. Right? When you are in a relationship with somebody, with a family member, uh, if it's a romantic relationship, you don't usually write them like just a bunch of all, your, here's, all, here's my list of problems, peace out, hope you fix those. Right? No, you call them up to kind of see how they're doing, talk to them. And in the process, they're like, how are you doing? What's going on? Here's the deal. Here's what's going on in my life. And sometimes they're like, oh, I've got a solution for that. Or I could help you with that. Or they just know about it. But that's not the main, the, your problem is not the main issue. It's the relationship that is being uh, developed there. This is what God is trying to do. He's trying to provoke his people into relationship so that they might know him and enjoy him. So as we come to the end of the psalm, I want you to notice this. This is, this is like the most incredible thing about it. In this psalm, there is absolutely no resolution to the problem. Like at the end, his problem is still there, but he's fine. His problem is still there. In some of the other psalms, we see that the Lord answers the prayer. The psalmist will say, like, I'm in the day of trouble. I'm dealing with these hardships. And he'll talk about like the process that he went through. And then he'll be like, but the Lord delivered me. He provided this. He defeated my enemies. Here, there's just no, there's no response about God providing. God does, will provide for his, his people. But there's no resolution to the psalmist's day of trouble. At the end, the tone of the psalm, it turns completely on the psalmist's focus on the Lord. If you look, at, look back at the psalm, it starts off, you know, really through like verse 13, a lot of like, I'm this way, I, 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 all these personal pronouns, like I'm this way, Lord, I'm doing, dealing with all these things, I got all these problems. And it's not until like verse 13 where he's like, your way, Lord you, Lord, you can see his whole perspective shift in, in, what, in the way that he starts speaking. In the beginning, it's me, 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 me. And in verse 10, he starts to get his life together and realize like he needs to know and enjoy Jesus and not try to get stuff from God. And then he has a perspective change. Now, there's no doubt that the Lord met Asaph in his day of trouble. I don't, we don't know what the, what the trouble was. Apparently it was a pretty big deal because he's not sleeping and all this crazy stuff. 
But the Lord met him. The Lord fixed his issue. Maybe not in the way that Asaph would have liked, but I'll tell you that Asaph went away more satisfied, more filled because he knows the Lord. The circumstance can change. But his knowledge of God isn't going to change. He's, he's going to enjoy God's faithfulness forever. He might deal with this same situation, this same day of trouble. It might come upon him again in two weeks. It might come upon him again in a year. It might be back. But it's God who is faithful, who doesn't change. And he goes away knowing and enjoying the Lord in a way that he did not before. And so as we consider Psalm 77, the practical thing for us to know and enjoy Jesus, learn about this through this, because we're really good at, at, at like wanting the outcome. Like we don't need help with like wanting to be like, well, Lord, how do we fix the problem actually? But we do have problem with that intermediate section where the Lord's like, just know me. Like we're, that's a little bit more uncomfortable. Because there's not really like a way for us to have these definable parameters of like, check that off. Like, yes, I know him. Done. Which is what we really want. So that way we can be like, all right, next thing. But this is a pursuit of knowing and enjoying the Lord. So that's what um, we want to take away as we come to this. When we find ourselves in the situation of verse 1, verse 2, crying aloud to God, aloud to him, knowing that he hears us, in the day of trouble, seeking the Lord. When we come to that situation, we want to have our mind in the right place, knowing that we're pursuing God in those situations because of who he is, not because of what he can do for us. He has purchased us with his own blood. He didn't purchase us with his own blood just so we can give him like our grocery list of like issues to deal with, and then like we can retreat and be like, all right, thanks for that. He wants to know us. He purchased us with his own blood for that relationship that we would know him and have a life with him. And in him is life abundantly. So let's pray together. We'll ask that the Lord does these things in our hearts together. Lord, we're so thankful for your loving kindness. We're thankful that you give us these psalms, Lord, to show us how desperately we need you. And to highlight, Lord, just the tricky nature of our own hearts, Lord, where we can desire a good thing, a right thing, uh, but yet, Lord, we can still use it in a sinful way um, to try to make you just a, a thing that's on the side rather than uh, worthy of all glory and honor. And so, Lord, we pray that you would keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus so that we might celebrate, Lord, your loving kindness. We might celebrate that you've set your love upon us and remember who you are. Lord, we're thankful that you've saved us, that you've redeemed us, that you've made us your own. And Lord, we want to respond and worship together, giving you all thanks and praise for your worthy. Work in our hearts, Lord. We love you.
Amen.